Otherwise, turn over to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I know, I have this gnawing feeling that something is really important that I wanted to announce. But you know me, I didn't write it down, so now I can't remember it. I'll be about three quarters of the way in or one third of the way in. I'll remember it and we'll call time out and we'll announce it, okay? <laughs> okay. Well, the book of John, what a blessing, man. What a blessing, the book of John. 92% of the book of John, 92%, can you believe this? Is original to the book of John. John had a real purpose in writing, a specific purpose, and you find that in John chapter 20. I've said it almost every week, if not every week that we're in this, um, uh, you know, this book. And the reason he wrote is that you and I, we, Anybody sitting here, anybody listening, the people who read the book of John, he doesn't hide the evangelical witnessing ball. He doesn't, he doesn't, he just comes right out and tells you. The reason I'm writing this book, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one who was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures, and the Son of God, the one who's fully God and fully man, the God's Son. And that believing you may have life in his name. That's the reason this book was written. And we get to the part now where Jesus had just cleansed the temple, indicating that he had authority to do so. And the people, uh, especially the religious people, are feeling a little funny about that. Because now that he's come in and upset their religious apple cart. And they don't know what to make of it. And so John, writing with a specific purpose then, moves us on from that to show us here over the next few chapters the way that people come to believe in Jesus. And I'm always was encouraged by the first story, Nicodemus, because Nicodemus was probably wealthy and rich and powerful and he came and Jesus told him he had to be born from above, born again. You know, before you became a Christian and you thought, oh, those born-againers, what were you saying? You were saying, oh, those people who are crazy for Jesus, whacked out, they're just too, too much. And that's what the world sort of thinks. But the point that Jesus makes is, you can't be a Christian unless you're born again, born from above. You can't just be a person who comes and does some sort of paradigm of living like Susie Orman sells you. Do good, do good, do good, do good, do this, do this, do this. No, you must, we must, to be a Christian, be born from above. And remember, Nicodemus didn't quite understand it. He said, wait a second, I got to go back into my mom's womb? What? Do you, what? Tell me about this. And Jesus said, no, 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 this is a spiritual thing. Remember, he said, you, you don't know quite, you don't really see the wind blowing, but you see the effects of it. And that's so true when, people, when the Lord comes into people's hearts and lives and people surrender their life to Jesus Christ, their life becomes totally different. There's, a to, uh, a, there's new life. There's new purpose. There's new direction. There's new desires. 
or right desires. And he approached this man, and what's interesting about chapter 3, Nicodemus, is who sought out who in chapter 3? Nicodemus sought out Jesus, folks. Now that's fascinating because when you get to chapter 4, I want you to notice something. Who seeks out who? Jesus seeks out the woman. Listen to this. Starting in chapter uh, 4, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. Now the reason I'm looking back here is, Let's see if my handy-dandy tech team can put up a map that I sent them. Oh, look at that. Are we sophisticated or what? And see, this is important for the story, those red lines there. You need to know this back at this time. Israel's divided into three sections. Say three sections. All right. And in the south is Judea. In the middle is Samaria. And in the top is Galilee, if I can speak. Judea, Samaria, Galilee. And that's important for this story. And the reason it's important is because there's a history here between the Jews and the Samaritans. There's a real history. And if you come on Wednesday night, oh, you're going to really know the history way better. That's my plug for Wednesday night, the Old Testament. And around 931 B.C., so not the time of the New Testament, in the Old Testament, about 931 B.C., there was the kingdom of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes split into 10 and 2. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel. And about 200 years after that, the Assyrians came into the northern part of Israel, the northern kingdom, and took out the 10 tribes. Everybody with me so far? They took out the ten tribes. And the Bible tells us in Kings that as they took them out, the Assyrians then planted people into that land in the middle between the north and the south. They planted people into that land. And these people believed or like to believe in the first five books of the Bible the Old Testament, just like the Jews did. But they also mingled it with idol worship. And that was a big no-no for God, right? And to the Jews. And so you have this thing happening, and so there became a real dislike between the Samaritans and the Jewish people and so if they were traveling, it was such a dislike, 
Do you see that red line over to the right? When you left Jerusalem, you would head down 14 miles down to Jericho. And it's way downhill. And then you'd go up. And when you get up there to Scott, uh, Skith, uh, Bet Shan, and we actually go to Bet Shan on our trip, you go left and then go up to Galilee. And you go up to Capernaum where they set up shop. Jesus set up shop. That's how people from Judea would travel. Are you getting it? And especially, look, look at this, look at this. He is a great teacher, a rabbi, but he's more than that, but he's a rabbi, right? And he takes his disciples, I want you to see this, this is the first thing I want you to see. When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, Jesus knew it wasn't his time to be crucified. And the Pharisees, the religious sect, the religious people of Jerusalem were getting upset and mad. And Jesus was on God, the Father's timetable. So he knew. It wasn't that he was scared. He knew he wasn't to be crucified yet. He still had some time to go. So he was going to get out of the lower part here, Jerusalem. And he left Judea and departed again. He's going to go to Galilee. Everybody from Jerusalem would take the route through Jericho. Nobody would go through Samaria. Oh, look at this. This is amazing. It's like shooting out of my fingers. <laughs> Nobody would go straight. Nobody. Nobody from Jerusalem would go that way. And Jesus says, come on, guys, we're going. And that's the first thing you need to know. Because you don't probably read Hebrew but if you did, it says he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. Oh, wow, look at this. There you go, there's Sychar. But before that, in verse 4, there's this little innocuous little, seemingly innocuous little verse. It said, but he needed to go through Samaria. Underline that. In other words... For lack of you know, explaining it for five minutes, let me just tell you this. That word means there was no other option. That word means there was no other option. Jesus was going to uh, Galilee, and he was going to head straight through Samaria, which, think about it now, if you're one of the 12. Just think about it. When he probably announced it, you know, you're, you're coming out of Jerusalem, and you're going... Jesus, why aren't we heading east? You're heading north. Of course we're not going north. And he's, he's walking and talking with them. Could there have been, sorry, could there have been, may, might there have been some talking in the back? What are we doing? Why are we going here? Everybody knows we don't take this route. We take the route on the other side of the Jordan, up, turn left, and go up to Capernaum. Why would we do this? You see, there was a real great hatred between peoples here at this time. He comes to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. It's near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Now he gets to Sychar. It's near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son. And you could go back uh, throughout the Bible. There's several references to Jacob you know, uh, buying this well and taking it over and feeding his 
many flocks and his people there. This was a very important place to Jacob. And so he gave it over to his son, Joseph. I don't know if you remember the story when Joseph was pleading with his dad. He had some sons called Ephraim and Manasseh. And he basically said, hey, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're going to, or he said to, to his dad, hey, Ephraim and Manasseh are going to take my place. And there's a whole story about that. And you could read about that uh, when uh, they do that. But the point is, Samaria was in that area of Ephraim and Manasseh, the place that was assigned to those grandsons. And they get there, and these people here, the Samaritans who worshiped there, who believed in the five books of the Bible, but also believed in other things, they started to say things that sort of weren't true, like, like things like Moses sacrificed Aaron up here. Now this area, Sychar, is in between two very famous mountains. And you could read about those mountains in the Old Testament. It's where they went out and the blessings and the curses were announced. Do you ever, anybody know about that? Well, God took his people out into the area near here, put them between two mountains, and upon one mountain, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal was the other, on one mountain, the blessings were announced. If you follow the covenant of the law, if you follow the law, here's what you'll get for blessing. If you don't follow, then they would yell them from the mountain. If you don't follow the law, here are the curses, and they would yell them from the mountain. That's in the Old Testament, folks. And so what I'm just trying to tell you is it's a very important spot in the Old Testament, and the Jews, as they thought about and understood what God was doing through them. But it was also a very important spot for the Samaritans who they didn't like. Each group didn't like. Or is everybody tracking with me still? So they get here to this Samaritan thing, and it says that he needed to go. There was this compulsion, this burden, this tug in the heart of Jesus to rely upon the Father. You know, Philippians 2 is such a free chapter because it tells us that even though Christ didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, in other words, he is equal with God. He laid aside his rights to his deity and privileges to that deity to live as a man. He never stopped being God. He was fully God, fully man all the time. But he was a man. And he lived in perfect dependence upon the Father, showing us how we should do it. Make sense? And here, apparently, the Lord, the Father, asked Jesus to go through Samaria. Now this just brings me pause for a second to my life and maybe to your life. When you've been instructed by the Word of God through the Spirit of God to do something, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing and a satisfying thing, I'm using that word on purpose, to be obedient to what God has called you to do? 
Here you see nothing but I needed to go, I had to go, or Jesus had to go. There was no option. I just want you to know how satisfying and beautiful and fulfilling and refreshing it is to do what God has called you to do and to be obedient to that. That's where life is, you see. And we're going to find out more about it later here in this chapter. But here he just needed to go. It's beautiful. In the last chapter, a man approaches Jesus. In this chapter, Jesus makes a beeline for one. One woman. Let's think of the contrasts. He's a man. She's a woman. And back in those cultures, man, that wasn't something that you did. You, <laughs> that just didn't happen. And then she's a Samaritan, and he's a Jew. And he's a rabbi, and we're going to find out what she is. And he's hungry, and he's weary, and he's tired, and he's thirsty. And you could at one point say, well, this was such a coincidence, but this was no coincidence. He needed to go through Samaria. He needed. It was un he knew. The Lord had just told him to go. I just, again, want you to see he's bringing disciples behind him or whatever with him. That's how he was discipling them. He was teaching them, talking to them along the way, but he was bringing them. And he was right now, for all time in Christ, shattering prejudice and race clashes and different people. When people look different than us or do different things or think different things or don't have their theology right, Let's just shy away from them. Maybe just stick our head in the sand and ignore Jesus makes a beeline. Wow. He makes a beeline. And he comes to Sychar, that plot of ground. This, he, they're telling you this because they want you to know that to the Samaritans, the Samaritans had sort of then taken this over as their own. Well, this happened in our region so we're the more spiritual. And the Jews are like, what are you talking about? And then they actually even set up a temple so that it was in competition like with the temple in Jerusalem. They set a temple up in Mount Gerizim and they w worshiped in their way. Not in the prescribed way that God gave the people of Israel. Are you, everybody still with me? Okay, so... You need to know all that because this woman of Samaria comes to draw water, and it's about the sixth hour. The sixth hour, according to Hebrew time, would be 12 noon. And that would make sense because the ladies would draw the water early in the morning or late at night. Why? Just for practical reasons, to stay out of the heat. But there are other indications in the... Uh, book of John that he's using Roman time, which would make it six o'clock at night. But I'm going to let you be a Berean there and think that through. 
If it's the sixth hour and it's noon, here comes this woman of Samaria to draw water. Now, what would she have with her? Yeah, she'd have a pitcher and she'd have buckets or whatever she had. She'd have some implements to get the water and lower it down the well. By the way, the well's still there. Surprise, surprise, surprise. A church is built over top of it. (laughs) That's because in Israel, that's what they do. If they find a neat site, they build a church over top of it. But, But this area is in the West Bank. Does anybody here know what the West Bank is? The West Bank is the Palestinian controlled area. So it's difficult for us to go there. We don't really go there when we do it, but uh, when we go over there, but that's where this is. And she's coming to draw water with her implements. And I want you to see something that's really touching. I was discussing with Jan the other day. Here from a socioeconomic standpoint, or even any sort of standpoint, the culture of the time, you would think that Jesus has the upper hand. And he doesn't say, how about I get you a drink? Which would be the way to say it if you had the upper hand. Especially if you knew about the living water that could really satisfy forever. But he says something different, and I think it's beautiful. He says, how about give me a drink? Would you give me a drink? He's weary. He's at this journey. His disciples had gone away, in verse 8, into the city to buy food. He's there with the lady, and he says, give me a drink. Now, this is interesting because she's had a tough life, it seems like. And what he's saying to her in a beautiful way is, dear, you still have things to do and stuff to offer. You get that? He could have said, I'll get you a drink. He's got the upper hand. He doesn't do that. He approaches her in a way just to break the ice, start talking to her, bring her into a conversation. And he says, and she doesn't even know it, I'm here to help you do what you've always been intended to do serve the Lord. And that's, you know, redemption. Do you know this? Redemption means to buy back, but it doesn't just mean that. It means to buy back and to put you into the use for which you were always intended by God. And how do you feel when the Lord uses you? You're so humbled and you're like, wow, Lord, you used me just to help. And here, she thinks she's just getting somebody a drink. She's serving the Lord. It's a great picture of redemption. The Lord's going to do a redeeming work in her life. She's useful. So he breaks the ice with that. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, notice how she talks to him and addresses him each time she addresses him. The first time she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, that's what she says, you're you're Jewish, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. You see, that's how I know (laughs) this really catches her off guard when he says, give me a drink. It was probably the way to say it is, 
I can get you a drink if you want one. He says, give me a drink. Then you're a Jew. How, how, how could you ask for me, a Samaritan woman? All these things, all these class distinctions, all these race distinctions, all these you know, religious distinctions, everything is diametrically opposed humanly, according to the world. These two people come together. And the woman of Samaria, how could it be? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She lays it out there for us. And Jesus answers and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, now I'll time out here for a minute. Every time you see gift, give, I want you to think of the word grace. <laughs> Everything's grace. All is grace. And here you just see the grace of Jesus. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So let's talk about that. What, what do you think the gift of God is, the gift of God? Well, the gift of God clearly is, as you move through, uh, as you move through this uh, whole book, the gift of God is the Holy Spirit. It's everywhere in the book of uh, John and also the book of Acts. You could look in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Acts 8, 20, Acts 10.45, Acts 11.17, and you're going to see the gift of God is the Holy Spirit. But guess what else, if you look in Romans chapter 5, is the gift of God? And this gets me excited. This gets me more excited than a Steelers Super Bowl. He says in Romans 5, 15-17, that... The grace of God and the gift of God is justification, righteousness, and life. Now listen, listen. You go, oh man, the big theological terms. Oh. Well, think through it. You've been justified by Jesus and all that he's done and accomplished, which means in God's courtroom, he sees you and says, oh gavel comes down, not guilty. And you've moved from being somebody who had to pay the penalty for your own sin to Jesus paying for your sin, and now you're not guilty before God. But not only that. He doesn't keep you just there. He moves you to a place of righteousness he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I and we have the righteousness of Christ in our spiritual bank account, 2 Corinthians 5.21, so that when you go to be with the Lord, he sees you as righteous, justified and righteous. And now you've been redeemed and put back into the game of life for which you were already intended or always intended so that you can live a life fully ablaze for God. See, that's righteousness. And when you, he says it's a gift. So when you go back to what he's talking about, he's doing the same thing he did with Nicodemus 
but in a different way. To Nicodemus, he said, well, you got to be born from above, born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? I don't understand that. Jesus being spiritually provocative in a good way. He's provoking people to think and to understand about being born from above, about the spiritual, and stop thinking about the material. That's what he's doing, and he does it here. He uses a glass of water. to share the deepest truth one could ever share with somebody. And he did it from a glass of water. And he did it so that she wasn't on the defensive. She did, he did it so that she would listen. He connected with her. He's, she knew he was Jewish. She knew he was a teacher, he was something. He was a male. How in the world could we connect? And Jesus does it over a glass of water. That to me is amazing. It tells me something. I think it tells you something. I got saved, folks, like from the back of a magazine. So I get it. I always say this. So I use the magazine. I love the magazine, Calvary Chapel Magazine. Take it and share. I got saved by the four spiritual laws, and people criticize the four spiritual laws and debate it in theological circles. All I can say is I got saved by the four spiritual laws. But if you're tied to the formula, you're not really witnessing. Witnessing is a lifestyle, and I use the magazine, and I use, would use the four spiritual laws, but it's about listening to people and understanding where they're coming from and making a connection with them and then being able to rightly divide the words so that no matter which way they come from, you can share with them. I read a story by, about Dr. Ironsides, and he jumped on a train one day thinking this very thing, and a Catholic priest sat beside him, and he wanted to share the gospel of grace with the Catholic priest. And he's just like, Lord, how am I going to do this? I mean, if I just start sharing all the differences between Catholicism and Protestant things and the things we... Man, I don't know if that's going to... So, so he said about 10 seconds later, the Lord just did it for him. The priest asked Dr. Ironsides, what do you do? And the Holy Spirit gave it to him. He said, well, I'm a priest. He said, well, where's your vestments? Where's your collar? Where's your, where's your stuff? Dr. Ironsides said, I opened up the scriptures and said, we're part of a holy priesthood, a chosen generation, and from there jumped off into the Things of grace. Beautiful. One time I was witnessing to a man who was going to pass away soon, and I studied for about three days for this, and he asked me to come to his house. I tell you this story all the time, and I've got all the evangelical scriptures. I've got all the witnessing scriptures ready to go, and I walk in the door, and he says two things. Why Israel? And have I been a good dad? And all I can tell you is, not me, but the Holy Spirit took over. And by the time we left, the heaviness that was on this man was gone. And he was free. And we're going to see him again in heaven. 
And it was really quite a beautiful experience. And the sir, or the, excuse me, the funeral that I officiated for him was one of the most powerful, grace-filled funerals I've ever been to in my whole life. And it was out in California, and it was beautiful. So here, it's just a glass of water. And he, doesn't, he disarms her with his ability to connect. <laughs> Jews have no dealings. And so he says, but if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. You see, Jesus is the great gift. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, given, you know, son given, you know, all the Christmas scriptures. But then Jesus said, we're going to get the gift of the Holy Spirit. You could look that up. So he says, give me a drink. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. See, this is where it seems similar to the Nicodemus story. She doesn't get it. Wait a minute. Where's your well or your bucket? Then where's your pitcher? Where, where's your stuff? Where are your gloves? That's going to be really tough to put down that uh, well, well for 100 feet or whatever it is. So you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well? See, the Samaritans were tied and, uh, and, and talked about how Jacob was sort of theirs, and it was on these mountains, and so they were the real and true religion. You're greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock. And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Tell me, yell it out. The water was from a, a well. What do you know about well water? Well, first of all, what'd you say? Tastes bad. <laughs> we have some country guys out over here. No, I don't know. But what do you know about a well? It's deep and it's dark and it's dank. And what is it generally? I mean, it, it comes up, and it, but, but it's generally stagnant, right? Isn't that true? And that's human or earthly water or the things that are on the earth. It's just sort of there. But I want you to see something here. I, he wants to give us something that's called living water. And I will give you, uh, but the water that I will give him will become in him, I want you to see the difference, a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. The water Jesus gives, watch it, don't get bored here. The water Jesus gives is not stagnant water. It's pouring out and it keeps bubbling. You ever been to, you know, Las Vegas or something? I'm sorry, I've been to Las Vegas. But anyway, you ever been and you walk down the street and you get in front of the Bellagio? And it just never stops, and it's coming out, and it's high, and it's powerful, and it's swift, and it's clean, and it's refreshing, and it's alive, you know, in the sense that it's moving, and it's, nothing can get in there to bacteria. You know, it's just moving. I know it's fake, but you get what I'm saying. And that's the, the contrast he's making here. You see that? He goes, I know you have something to drink. But it's sort of from the earth and is man-made. And you're just going to drink it 
and still be thirsty. You're, you're going to thirst again. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst. Wow, that's interesting. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And he's talking here, right? About earthly things. How do I know? Because the story goes on and he says, the women said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's no dummy. She's like, wow, I don't, I don't want to keep doing this. It's a mi- the, the well was a mile and a half away from the city. I don't want to keep doing this. I don't want to have to come when nobody else is here. I feel like an outcast. I don't want to do this. So tell me about this because I want this to happen. And Jesus said to her, when I was a kid and would read this, I just couldn't understand this shift. Wait a minute. Just tell her. Lord, just tell her. Give it to her right then. Just tell her the punchline, please. And the woman answered and said, or excuse me, and Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And she says and answers, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. And I always thought, well, that is just really odd. I don't understand it, Lord. Help me to understand this. And the thing I think is happening with the shift here is this. Is that Jesus is calling her and everybody who comes to the living water, not the stagnant water, to be people who don't depend upon earthly things. To come into a spiritual relationship with him. And the reason that I got choked up today when I was saying our prayer at the beginning of the service is men and women are born with an unsettledness and a disappointment and a dissatisfaction with life. We're sinners who've been separated from God. And the point is that we grow up and people all around the world now are heading into counseling, talking to the pastors, seeing people who have anxiety and fear and unsettled life. And the reason is, one, Ecclesiastes 3 tells us, there's this longing for eternity, the things for God in our hearts. But the problem is we fill that thing that can only be filled by God with stuff. That's earthly. Like, for instance, he just uses one example here, so I'm going to go with it. This lady was in love with romance. Apparently, she had made romance her idol. You know, you know when you watch Disney all those times, man, and you were a little kid, and always the prince would come at the right moment and he whisked the lady off to, you know, from danger and kiss her and wake her up and the rest of their life would just be perfect and wonderful. You ever been married? (laughs) It is wonderful. (laughs) 
But the reality is, even in marriage, see, is that you have this honeymoon phase and da da da, da and then, you know, you live together for a while. And there's sort of like the honeymoon romantic stuff. It still remains, but it's not that type where you, you need to be on the phone 24-7 or I can't stand not to see you or whatever, right? And here, apparently, she had got to the place where the luster of all that romance and excitement and that, you know, butterfly feelings in your heart had gone away. And so, for whatever reasons, her and her spouses had separated and off she went to the next one and she was as the old country music song says looking for love in all the wrong places and obviously there's nothing wrong with marriage god says it's good if if he's called you to that to be married but but here's the thing she was in love with being in love instead of being in love with jesus and she knew or the lord knew that in a marriage there's going to be this and so you have to deal with the highs, but you also have to deal with the lows. And for a person who's getting married, the most important thing is that the eternity in their hearts is filled with the Lord first, right? And then as they move forward and navigate the ups and the downs, both the wife and the husband are leaning upon the Lord to see them through. But apparently that wasn't happened. Now listen, the Lord's just using one example. It could be anything, folks. We fill our hearts, or try to fill our hearts, with, you know, power and money and prestige and image and all these sorts of things, 401Ks, being great at some, I don't know, a hobby, I don't know. And none of them are bad in them themselves, but they'll never, zero, 100% of the time fail you in the end because there's no life in them. What would you want to have all of these things but lose your life or would you rather gain your life with Jesus? And Jesus fills it and will fill it. Whoever drinks of this water, the water of the world, the stuff that's fading away, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water... I'll give him, well, never if there's. And then he says, well, go tell me, talk to me about your husband. Why does that shock me? Why does that surprise me? Because you're really, listen, 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 listen. We skip this step in the Christian life. You really can't live in the grace of God until you've known how much you've been forgiven. And we are a people who say, well, we're not that bad. Come on, I live in a suburb and I go to work and I have a 401k and I'm going to retire and everything's going to be great and I'll play golf as much as I want and all that sort of thing. And the Lord says, wait a minute, before you come to me and have this life of power and strength and beauty, you must know that you're a sinner and you repent from it. One author said this, the sin and shame and guilt, listen to this, is an eternal barrier between the soul and God. And no one can ever live in the glory of God's presence without first 
having settled somewhere, somehow, this crisis of guilt. And so, Jesus raises the issue himself with the Samaritan woman. Wow. In Proverbs 28, whoever covers a sin will not prosper. It says this, but whoever confesses it will find mercy. We sang about it today. You're going to find and discover the mercy and the grace of God when you just recognize and understand that you're a sinner. And then you'll come into this relationship with God. But listen, you say, well, I'm not so sure I have rivers of living water flowing out of me. Well, maybe it is that you've not got down on your knees and said, Lord, this thing that I'm doing is wrong. Lord, these things that I'm, images I'm looking at, not godly. Lord, I know you've told me in the past that this thing or that thing or whatever it is is inappropriate. And I've sort of just blown you off. But Lord, you're right. It's sin. And I want to walk away from it with your help. And Lord, I want you to come and fill me up to this place where there's rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. Remember this in John chapter 7. You could move there. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, there's a feast going on, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. I want you to put that underneath there. If, if, if you say you want rivers of fountains of living water to barrel out of your life, underneath, underline this, come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, I don't know if you catch it, but what we're reading today in John 4 is how you come into a relationship with the Lord. But there in John 7, it's not only you coming into the relationship with the Lord, but you sharing it out for others to take a drink. Did you catch that? Jesus said, if you come... And follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Well, that is this, this, the Holy Spirit. Corinthians tells us that no men or women can come to the Lord by natural means. They must be revealed by the Spirit. So we live by the Spirit and operate by the Spirit. So what does it mean? I want you to think about this. I want you to think about what does it mean to come to Him and to drink of the water that Jesus gives you. I want you to think about that. How does it practically happen in your life? Everybody stop what they're doing. How does it practically... Stop if you're walking, just freeze. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> How does it happen in your life? How does it happen in your life? How do you come to Jesus? Well, here's what you do practically. You just shut off your stupid phone. Get rid of it. Stamp on it if you have to. Put it in that box that you lock up for a time and won't let it out. Just get rid of it. Get rid of the Netflix. Get rid of Spotify. Just go get quiet with the Lord and go get this. 
and get in there and just read. Just maybe, you don't have to read a lot. Maybe whatever. I don't, I'm not going to tell you what to read, but just have it here. You're studying the Word. You're coming to the Lord. He speaks to us through His Word. He sanctifies, by his, sanctifies us by His truth. And His truth is His Word. And you come here and you just respond. And you seek Him. And you talk to Him. And you praise Him. And then maybe a little later on, you sing to Him or put on the, the music then and sing out to the Lord. Now you say, well, how do you know this? Because there's another movement to this story that sort of just puzzled me when I was little, reading the Bible. First of all, he says, you know, I know Jesus has the answer. Lord, I know you have the answer here as I'm reading as a kid. I know you have the answer. You're here in verse 15, and she says, give me the water. Oh, hey, Lord, just give her the punchline. Just tell her. And the Lord says, no, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to call your husband. I want you to come face to face with the sin in your life and deal with it. Repent and move forward. Everybody with me? And then he does something again. You're like, what? Why are you doing this? Then he says, or she says in verse 19, sir, I, by the way, she calls him sir now. There's a respect now. There's something about him that she recognizes. And then she even calls him a prophet. And then she goes, uh-oh, but we got problems here, Lord. That's what she's saying. I'm confused. I don't know what to do. Watch this. She goes, and you wouldn't know this if I didn't give you that 40-minute precursor here. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. I'm a Samaritan. And we worship here on Mount Gerizim in this temple. But you're Jewish. And the Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, I'm puzzled here. Why did the Holy Spirit, through John, decide to put this in here? Because in order to have living waters flowing from your life, as you repent and turn from your sin, you will be a person of worship. I, I say this all the time, just for me, but I, I think it's biblical. I, I find it odd. It's just odd to me. When do you feel most loved? I think for me is no doubt when I'm worshiping. Why would I feel loved when I'm singing that way? And this is it. We go around. Just give me the seven keys to happiness. Give me the seven... Scriptures for peace. Love scriptures, love keys to happiness. But he's saying before you move out and do anything, you've repented, you've come in, before you've done anything, do this. Before you go to work, do this. Before you take on a task, do this, Mary and Martha. Worship. So she asks him, and they put it in here on purpose, but I, we worship on this mountain. What do you, and Jesus says, woman... Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Now, think about it. Wait a minute, what? The temple in Jerusalem is everything to the Jews. This is our temple here. It's everything to us, the Samaritans. What do you mean we won't do that? You worship what you don't know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. 
The Bible tells us that Jesus came and was Jewish. That's easy to figure out. And the gospel went first to the Jews and to the Gentile in the book, Gentiles in the book of Romans. But the hour is coming, verse 23, and now is when the true worshipers. See, now my ears perk up when I hear that. Does yours? Because I feel most loved when I'm worshiping. And when I hear true worshipers, I'm like, whoa, shoot. What's coming now is really pretty important. They're going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And you already know the first of this. This isn't mysterious for you because you've been tracking in John. You worship in spirit. You must be born again or from above. It's the same thing he told Nicodemus. In order to be a true worshiper, you have to be born from above. You can't just fake it to make it. If you come in here and just sing the songs, mm -mm. you're just singing songs. You're not worshiping. You could be saying the same things. You could even be a bad singer like me. But in your heart, be worshiping. You don't have to be perfect. You know, sometimes you come in here and you're hurting, you're struggling, and you're singing and you're just being honest with the Lord. Lord, I'm singing this, but I'm hurting. He loves that. He knows that he, you're honest with him. But you must, in order to be a true worshiper, be born of the Spirit. It must be deep because you've been born again. Everybody good with that? But the other one's fascinating for me. And truth. <laughs> Look, it goes hand in glove. Here's the truth. Listen, I like emotions. I know there's some... I want to be moved by the Lord. You do too, but I know that that can get wacky sometimes because sometimes my emotions get out of whack. And this never changes. And when you respond to this, listen, listen, listen. When you respond to this, not just read it, but respond to it, watch, you're worshiping. You got to have this. Otherwise, people will run around the room and be emotional and jump up and down and do flips and back cartwheels and all that sort of thing. And it'll seem really emotional and really valuable. But you're not worshiping in truth. You want to worship at home? Come to Him with through this. You're a born-again person. You say to the Lord, Lord, whatever you have for me here today, just show me something in your word and respond to the Lord. The gospel always asks for a response from us. That's worship. So he says, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Praise the Lord. I don't have to conjure things up. I can just look in his word and just be blown away and go, wow, Lord, thank you. And sing to him about it. That's what we did here today. You could even build a porch on your back of your house and sing out back like others in here have done. And that's a compliment, by the way. Not making fun. That's amazing. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Do you see the progression? Jew, don't really know. Sir, prophet, rabbi, Messiah. Wow. He walked her right through it from a cup of water. 
The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us these things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I want you to see, there's several people that will ask you, well, why didn't he just call himself the Messiah? He did. He did. And that point, his disciples came. Can you imagine the disciples? They'd been down at Subway and ordered the subs, and they were walking back up. And they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, why do you seek or what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot. I just wonder, it's fascinating to me. <laughs> Did he e actually ever get the drink? <laughs> and did he even care? He went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man, see, she says it, who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying... Rabbi, eat. Now watch, he's going to do it with his disciples. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's my food. It's the reason he went to Samaria right there. If you're wondering why he went to Samaria, it's right there. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And this is what I want you to see. That's food. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap uh, for that which you have not labored, others have labored, you've entered into their labors. Just very quickly, watch this. My, f my food is to do the will of him who sent me. There is a, do you remember? Remember in Ecclesia, it says the eternity is in your hearts. And we try to put, pump in there sex, drugs, rock and roll, power, the whole shooting match. And nothing works. It's fun for a time, but it lasts or it runs out. And then you're like, oh, it's no satisfaction. I mean, seriously, I goof around, but the Rolling Stones sang it for the ages. I can't get no satisfaction. They were, I know, but, but that's what life is like. We can go to a rock and roll show and travel around or be rich or whatever. But this, when you obey the Lord, he's showing us to how to be in perfect dependence upon a father. There's this deep abiding satisfaction way down in there in obedience to what God wants. And then the kicker. I love it. So funny just like eating food. <laughs> Come on now. You like eating food. Just think of what your favorite meal is. Think of what your favorite meal is. And maybe you cook if you're the man, or maybe your wife cooks it, but when she's making it or he's making it, you can smell it, and you can't wait. And you know, you know that thing that every time it goes in there, it's just like gold, man, and it's, you savor it, and it tastes so good. And there's something, it's, isn't the Lord so good? He has you enjoy food. And then you know how, how amazing that is, and you know, as long as Uncle Ernie didn't come over, the Thanksgiving went really well, and... You're sitting there and you're full and everything. Your kids are around and, so, and you're set. And Jesus says, if you really want to be satisfied, be obedient to what I've called you to. But before you do that, I want you to be a worshiper. Before you do any work 
or do any obedience, I want you to be a worshiper where I'll fill you up and then you'll move out. Here's what I would say to you. Why are you not doing what the Lord has called you to do? You're missing out. It's not a pastor's plea for help. We have lots of help. It's for your own good. (laughs) What is the Lord calling you to? Do it. Be obedient. And many, verse 39, of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. In other words, through one woman, many in Sychar and the surrounding region got saved. Everybody tracking with me? Watch this. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And I love it here. I miss this all the time, but the Lord's showing it to me. And he stayed there two days. He stayed in the area two days. Remember, he keeps doing that. That's what discipleship is about. Paying attention to the people. And many more believed because of his own word. And then when he gave the word, many more people believed. Then they said to the Woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and he knows, or and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And this is so beautiful. Through one cup, through one lady, through a lady he wasn't supposed to be around or near because of all the barriers. But watch, it doesn't end there. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Look in verse 4, Acts chapter 8. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. And then he gives this story of a sorcerer who comes to faith. Watch down in verse 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they then sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet it hadn't fallen upon them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And it goes on and on. There's this thing in Samaria that went like this. (laughs) Through one person. Who everybody in the world would have thrown on the trash heap. Even religious people. Oh my goodness. Five husbands. You kidding me. Jesus makes a beeline for her. She surrenders her life to him. Many in the town come to know him, and later the gospel goes forth. I just want you to see something. The immense power that God can do through one person who knows they're forgiven. So as we close up right here, let's pray together, and let's... Ask the Lord, if we never surrendered our lives to Jesus, to come into our hearts. And if we have surrendered our lives to Jesus, is there something that he's saying to you or talking to you about 
where you haven't been obedient, well, you'll never find satisfaction until you just give it over to him, live in the light and worship him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning and thank you for this glorious word, the woman at the well. Lord, I thank you that you break down all racial, social divides in Christ, in your son. Whew, so great. Lord, help us to be people who want to share and love people who are hurting and lost and lonely and dissatisfied and anxious and fearful, Lord, because you have living water that can come pouring out of our life, real life, life of contentment and joy and peace and strength in you. Help us to remember that people have this feeling deep underneath and they don't even know it's there. Help us to share and to point them to the light of the world. You, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.